Hi, welcome to Shelf Love. As I record this intro, it's Monday, June 1st, 2020, and I'm thrilled to share this conversation about history and romance with Katrina Jackson, Rebecca Weatherspoon, and Felicia Grossman that was recorded on March 26th, 2020, back when the coronavirus pandemic was still in its early days. Now, two plus months later, even though we are still in lockdown in many parts of the country, Americans are risking their lives to protest the murder of George Floyd, which occurred while he was being placed under arrest by police officers in Minneapolis. Once you listen to our conversation about history, it may seem like this discussion was prescient. Unfortunately, it's only reflective that recent violence against Black people in the United States, particularly at the hands of law enforcement, is the daily lived experience of Black Americans. I hope you enjoy this conversation, which includes many salient points that I think are incredibly important for the romance genre to contend with and really confront. Black Lives Matter. Hello, and thanks for listening to Shelf Love. Welcome to the Decameron Quarantine Romance Book Club. This is part nine of a 10-episode miniseries of short, casual conversations with romance experts who are here to spread the joy of romance novels so that we can all stay home and not spread the coronavirus. I'm Andrea Martucci, host of the Shelf Love podcast, and tonight I am joined by Rebecca Weatherspoon, multi-award-winning romance author. Felicia Grossman, author of Historical Romance, a musical theater nerd and eclair enthusiast, and Katrina Jackson, a history professor and author of erotica and erotic romances featuring diverse characters. Tonight's theme is history. So Katrina, you are my resident history professor, and I basically added this theme with you in mind. So let's start with you. Uh (laughs) Which romance? Yay! Yay. (laughs) Basically, Um, whenever I have a question on history, I'm just like, Katrina... And I'm like, I actually don't know that. So I'm so I was actually going to choose a different book, but because of various recent things I've been thinking about, the book I chose is Beverly Jenkins Forbidden, which is a book I love. I loved the first time I read it, maybe like two years ago. But the reason I love it now and the reason I wanted to recommend it is because as I was talking with Steve Amidown at the BGSU Pop Culture Library, one of the things that confuses me about it is that it is actually quite revolutionary in terms of Black literature. It is very clearly a tragic mulatto narrative. I mean, they have existed at least since Nella Larson's passing, and they all follow a very sort of tragic, as the name would suggest, but very formulaic kind of storytelling and forbidden upends almost every single plot point of those stories, which exist in literature, but also film and television. I mean, she just deconstructs it and creates this really beautiful narrative about a man who is passing for white in a small, I did not reread it for this episode, but um, he's passing for white in a town just after the Civil War that is racially divided to a certain extent. But part of the reason I love it, and I knew I would love it when I started reading it, is that a trope in the, the passing stories are that, that like no one quite knows that the person who's passing is passing. They don't know that they're Black. And yet every Black person in this town knows that the hero is Black. But they protect his secret because they want him to do well. And also he is distinctly connected to the community and he treats everyone well and pays them good wages and all of that. And then at the end, she again kind of upends the narrative by having him give up that privilege of his white skin and mixed parentage 
so that he can be with the Black woman he loves. It's just such a beautiful book, and I wish scholars would discuss it alongside, like, a Nella Larson's passing. And, you know, that reminds me of a similar plot point in An Unconditional Freedom, where there's some siblings, and one of the siblings passes for white, and it's really explored in that novel, too, like, why there is privilege attached to passing, but also how it's it's like um how it can be used to benefit the larger community because that's how uses it in that book right that like the ability to pass because i think very often people write about passing narratives and they talk about those narratives as if those people just do not want to be black and i historically it's so much more complicated and in in unconditional freedom but also in forbidden both authors sort of pull back the layers to deal with the complication and they do so in ways that are humanizing, right? That these are decisions that people make because of the cultural context and that nothing is easy, but that you also don't have to villainize people for passing per se. And that that isn't even a a thing that necessarily black people are doing because they do understand the context in, in which they live. It's just so, so careful and and layered and lovely. Mm-hmm. And so, Rebecca, which romance novel would you recommend on the theme of history? So I had to fistfight myself not to recommend the Beverly Jenkins because I knew Katrina was going to do a Beverly Jenkins. <laughs> I could smell it in the air. I would recommend Gold Mountain by Sharon Colors. It takes place in 1865 in Sacramento around um, the gold rush and the building of the railroad. And the hero is a Chinese immigrant who is working to send money home to his parents. And the heroine is a black woman who runs like a shop and a, a laundry with her sister, I believe. This book is just so warm and touching. And I think on the same theme as, you know, what Katrina was talking about in terms of the reality and the nuance of what actually happens in not only interracial relationships, but interracial relationships between people of color and how people of color come together in situations where white supremacy is so overwhelming. So you have a situation where you have a Chinese immigrant worker in a time when white people were lynching Chinese people the same way they were lynching black people. In Breathless, which is the follow-up to Forbidden, which Katrina mentioned, no, it's Tempest, sorry. The hero in that book is a doctor, and he ends up going to help out during the race riots where all of these um, Chinese immigrants were also attacked by white workers. Gold Mountain really manages to weave a really tender, loving story in a time where existing as a non-white person, even though that's still kind of the case now, unfortunately, but existing as a non-white person was a threat to your life, where you could be murdered walking outside of your home or murdered in your home or murdered in your place of business just because you weren't white. And Sharon did a really beautiful job of showing two people with a language barrier coming together and seeing that they were drawn together and we're going to make it work no matter what. I really enjoyed that because when I found that book too, it, it was still kind of in the early days of eBooks for me. And I was also kind of late to romance too. So I don't like to say, you know, books weren't out there. I was super late to romance. So 
for me, it was really great to find this book when I was still kind of hadn't worked my way through, you know, Beverly Jenkins' backlist. Yeah, Les Cole's historicals hadn't come out yet. So finding this book with a Chinese hero and a black woman, so well written, so warm, I just, it really sucked me in and it was, I don't know, it was, it was really nice to see a romance where there was no white people involved. <laughs> uh, and to see a romance that really did paint the terror, but also, and again, Beverly Jenkins does this really well, shows that people of color, we have lives of our own outside of white supremacy. And those lives can be beautiful and loving and, I mean, kind of spoiler, but there's a happy ever after and they have kids and it's like you you like want this family to succeed and thrive. So if you have not read Gold Mountain by Sharon Colors, you should. I just looked it up on Goodreads and the cover is also really beautiful. Yeah, the cover is. So Felicia, which romance novel did you bring? So to talk about the idea of history being used in uh, romance novels, I picked Spellbound by Allie Theron, which is a supernatural historical built in sort of a slightly alt version of post-World War I New York. And it's interesting to me in a couple of ways, but she uses history in a bunch of ways. One, in her world building and what gets kept. And it's always interesting to see when you're sort of adding the fantasy elements, what of reality is kept and what of New York she kept in the book. And it's a cross-class romance. And she talks a lot about class in that era. And one of her heroes is an immigrant. And she talks about New York being the diverse, vibrant New York that New York can be. And she kept those parts of it. It's a male-male romance. And one of her heroes, his magic ability is he can see the history of objects. So she uses history that way. And part of this is about finding magical objects that might destroy the world and has a dark history. And you time slip in different times of that. And then each of our heroes in it has trauma in their own backstory so they have to go through the the deal of dealing with their own personal histories to get their hea so i call it like history cubed so it's history uh, a historical book with personal history dealing with historical objects wow oh that's what cubed means not squared i'm not good at math (laughs) (laughs) it's been a while since we all did that <laughs> That's so interesting. So it's it's what do you say it's New York during which time period? Early 20s, so just post World War 1. That's the interwar period. Interwar. Yes. I I'll never forget interwar. When Cat was on, she was like talking about like interwar and I'm like, "What's interwar?" And she's like, "Between wars." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> it makes sense. It's words. So it's interesting that's a male male cross class because I just had an episode with Emma Berry and we read A Seditious Affair by KJ Charles that is another male male cross class romance historical and one of the things that Emma and I talked about was this idea of we have this certain idea about like what a regency novel is and what history looks like we have these assumptions about what life was like we have like Jane Austen in our heads and when you tell a queer romance in history, there's this sense of like, oh, well, it must all be suffering and terrible and they can't actually end up together. And there's all these assumptions that we have about that time. 
and like, oh, well, that's not historically accurate for them to actually be able to be together in this situation. Some people make arguments like, oh, it really messes with my fantasy. I just want to read something fluffy where there isn't all this difficult shit going on. For example, something that is often mentioned is that in historicals, like, nobody would have teeth and they'd all have STDs and there wouldn't be all these young, handsome dukes running around. But I think all of the novels that you've you've all discussed have these, like, confronting some of the less fun fantasy elements of history. And one of the things Emma said very articulately was basically talking about when you tell this historical story, a, a fictional representation of history is always going to be, it's fictional, but you get to choose what you want to focus on. And if stories of history only ever focus with one lens, like, oh no, this is what history is, then we start to create this concept of like, that's what history is or was. But there's so many people and so many different stories that are left out of that. So my question, is there a conflict between historical accuracy and fantasy? What do you guys think? That's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, mm, I feel like, okay, here's- We don't I'm, have to I'm have answers. I think I'm going to approach this from the lens of being a Black woman, okay? I feel like a lot of time- in reality, I'm confronted with and interacting with people who have no idea how black people exist in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's always kind of a conflict between reality and any kind of fiction cross-culturally. Because there's always some aspect of like not actually understanding the real reality. Mm -hmm. So if I wrote a super, super hyper-realistic romance about a black woman finding love in a city, having friends, whatever, a lot of mainstream publishers would be like, this isn't realistic. Mm -hmm. And I think what they're saying is this actually doesn't fit the mold of what I think a black woman's experience is, right? So you can say that, I guess, about any kind of fiction where if the perspective is this doesn't fit my understanding of reality, then it's going to make it impossible for you or make it more difficult for you to accept the aspects of the fantasy. There was a really great quote. I wish, wish, wish I could find it. Someone was talking about working at Disney and creating universes for fictional movies and cartoons and that sort of thing. And the act of creating, you actually are delving into the fantasy utopia in your own mind, right? So if you can't comprehend people of color, queer people, whatever, having rights, falling in love, being found attractive by people you don't think should find them attractive, that's because the utopia in your head does not make room for that. So I think a lot of when we talk about reality and fantasy, it has to do with the individual and what they're looking for and what they want for themselves and what they want for other people. Yeah. Um, I think I'm of two minds about this as a reader and as a historian. I think on the one hand, I sort of push back at this sort of idea that we can ever in any kind of literature and any kind of you know medium approach reality because we can't right 
and historians learn that very early, right? Like we will never know the entire story. What we know is based on the availability of sources, right? And our ability to question them or corroborate them, whatever. So there are sort of moments where I sort of read that kind of realism as asking for a kind of totality that no historian would necessarily be held to. And so that seems a problem. But on the other hand, when I see historical romance authors and readers push back at that realism, I think they're doing what Rebecca is talking about. What they're saying is, well, I don't have any information about that. And so why should I have to do that? Like, why should this book have to be real, right, in that particular way? And I think sometimes people choose cheap outs for this where they're like oh it's you know why are there so many dukes like because you know it's the fantasy and it's like or or are we sort of doing what pbs does every you know season which is fetishizing the aristocracy right and that is a different conversation right you can have the fantasy with all of your dukes with nice teeth and you know who are not 50 and smelling terribly and have gout right you can have that, but the minute you start doing that and you create an entire world that is allegedly well-researched, right, but is as limited as can be, then I think you do have to sort of contend with issues of historical realism. If for no other reason, then I'll make this personal plea, my students come to class and they think that that's all that there is because they've watched the movies and they've watched PBS and they've read the books and they're like, of course there were no black people in um, England. Yes, there were, right? But we don't have spaces for that in popular culture. So I then have to kind of push them through the sources, which they then begin to question because they're like, well, if this existed, why isn't it in the books? And it's like, well, which books, right? So I, I think on the one hand, those questions can be unfair, but on the other hand, I think historical romance authors should ask themselves why they keep writing the same kinds of unrealistic romances. Yeah, the idea that fantasy shouldn't be a cop-out for not interrogating the world, because it's not just you're writing a bunch of hot dukes with nice teeth. It's used as an excuse for not interrogating where everybody got their money and what the world actually look like and who else lived in the world and what your characters actually thought about this sometimes when i read it's always the dissidency when i'm like and it's, i love me a good regency but i'll be reading about these people and then it will suddenly occur to me they probably all would have disliked me mm-hmm. most of these this aristocracy in parliament voted against bills to give jews equal rights during this time because none of those bills passed the idea of a romance, the idea of, I can't remember which critic said that that there should, needs to be an element of justice in the HEA, that it needs to, that the characters need to be worthy of an HEA. The fantasy can't be a cop-out to give unworthy characters a happily ever after. Yeah. 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 Rebecca, you said earlier when you were talking about Gold Mo- Mountain like how the book talked about both the reality and the nuances and how I'm making vast generalizations, but some romances, there's not a lot of nuance in how history is presented. It's like this cheap facade of 
like a Disney palace, but you walk up to the wall and you're like, oh, this is just like a painted piece of plywood. And in my experience, and I also get the sense generally, that there are a lot of romances that they start delving past the well-trodden path of history that, you know, Katrina was referencing this is the view of history that students have seen in like popular culture or whatever and anything that kind of falls off that path it's a lot harder it's like wait what that happened what what's going on there i mean basically what that means is anything that's not like white cisgender heterosexual you know christian rich whatever in history like because those are the people who got to tell their stories and are well documented and and there's this sense that that's what history is and and there's a lot of books that just like they just don't tell a lot of nuance of history it's kind of like this this cheap facade of history to like have other things happen in and i can't remember my original point but it's like in sort of telling these stories through a marginalized person's lens it just necessarily includes more nuance of the history like maybe some of that is because otherwise readers won't believe it's true well i i i would like to say we should give a, a, a little bit of this responsibility to acquiring editors yeah um <laughs> because acquiring editors do ask for this stuff over and over and over again authors are not solely to blame for the sameness i don't know i think katrina has she made a good point i think there is this kind of like fine line of like we do want an aspect of the fantasy right so one of the reasons why i think a lot of readers like beverly jenkins books is because she has black people mostly in very difficult situations and very not fun periods of time finding their happily ever after and having usually a really good time while they're at it. Her books are very funny. But how can and people also, have ever had fun in those time periods, Rebecca? Yeah, and, and and that's another element too, just this idea that like no one was laughing ever. And it's like, well, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, we're in so, the midst of the pandemic and we're laughing, right? Right, and I think people have used humor since the dawn of humor. I, I love when people post like Victorian photos of people, you know, the outtakes of like people laughing and stuff like that. Humor has always been a part of the the reality of human existence. So I think there is a fine line of the fantasy of just wanting kind of like a clear cut story where nothing bad is happening and only having that. And I think you you can do both. And I do think that Beverly Jenkins, for example, is an author who in historicals does it very well where you have a heroine, say like a Nighthawk, I believe, who's traveling cross country and she has to sit in the back with like the animals. And that part is terrible. But then you have like this great part where she's like having sex with a hero off the back of a train. And that's like pretty cool too. So I think there is a place to include the reality when we talk about, you know, film and PBS esque film, bell is a perfect example where you have the clear issue of slavery is like the subplot of the story. And you have a hero who is also confronted with that and makes a stance. I think it is possible to have something set in a period of time where horrible things are happening. And there's a moral compass in the story where the hero or the heroine can say, you know, and Alyssa Cole also does this in, in her historicals 
where you have a hero and heroine say there's horrible things going up, but we're also going to stand up against those horrible things and still have humor, still have sex, still have the happily ever after because people did fall in love throughout history, you know, against amazing odds. So Mm -hmm. there's that. Yeah. And then, so I wanted to touch too on how sometimes through repetition of what we've seen in media and like in romance novels specifically, we can sometimes also get a perverted vision of history. One that is shaped by a particular author or just kind of like through repetition, one starts to get this sense of the way things were that is not even accurate. And Felicia, you've written on this specifically with Georgette Heyer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the Grand Sophie discussion and the anti-Semitism in there, that was a whole conversation because she used a lot of contemporary Jewish stereotypes of the time she actually lived in to write historical Jews, which weren't exactly accurate, which is an issue. So you have, so you have that problem. And because you set him up as a villain in her story for conforming to those stereotypes that sort of perpetuates them. There are flaws in that, and that's problematic, and that repeats stuff that's very, very dangerous to me. But there's also a flaw in that as for her as a writer doing that, because when she does that in that book, she's not acknowledging that it's unrealistic. Because Sophie had way more power than he is. She's not overcoming anything. She had all the power in the situation and she's punching down. And and in my opinion, it's not a successful romance if your main characters are going to win by punching down. But the more you repeat some of those stereotypes, the more they get ingrained in us. And the more people start to believe they're true. And when you're dealing with marginalized communities and non-marginalized communities, there needs to be sort of an acknowledgement in romance that we can all have the same tropes, but sometimes they look a little bit different and sometimes they have to be explored in different ways. This is a little off topic. There's a conversation about people being tired of the billionaire trope, whether in historical or in contemporary, and billionaires look different depending on, it's the lens you're looking through. I had a conversation with Stacey Actor on this, that as Jews, when we're billionaires, people see us as monsters. It's not like such a happy, like sexy thing. It's dangerous. We're conforming to certain stereotypes. You end up with the stuff that happened to people like then Mayor Rothschild or what happens with George Soros today. So it's, these tropes work differently also depending on the community that you're looking at, but you're always looking at it it depends what lens you're looking at. And when you look only through that majority lens, you see a very narrow story. Mm-hmm. The repetition part is actually the part that matters, right? So the, it's called the historiography, right? So technically, historical romance has a historiography of writing out most people, right? I did I did actually see Felicia's thread on Georgia Hare. And it was so perfect because I think one of your points, Felicia, if I'm right, was that it's not just that she wrote in that way, it's that other people took her writings as historical fact, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The historical profession, right, academically is, is footnoting, right? So you read everything 
within reason that you can written on a subject. And then when you are writing a new thing, you have to show your sources, right? And you want to do that, especially when you're pushing back at what is bad historiography. And because you need to sort of point out that we created a field that is incorrect and we have perpetuated ideas that are wrong. And so we can't just sort of say, hey, I have this new idea that like black people have souls, right? (laughs) You have to say, not only do they have souls, but this is how other historians have said they don't and also why they said they didn't, right? So the fact that that sort of historical romance, the sort of pushback of historical romance about historical realism isn't actually looking at the scholarship itself is so frustrating, right? It doesn't really matter what historical romance authors are writing per se, right? Or as Rebecca said, what people are acquiring. What actually matters is the history they are building, they're they're writing on, and then the other romances they are in conversation with. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about like, you know, the utopia in your head, making room for things. And kind of about like the like through repetition, we we as romance readers get this idea of what certain historical periods might be like. There are omissions and then there are maybe inaccurate repetitions and maybe repetitions that are accurate. But if if that's all we see, then that also becomes kind of it's just about the omissions then. Another thing I was thinking about with that, like with the utopia, specifically the utopic vision, was who mentioned an element of justice in HEA, where... I think it's me, but I'm quoting somebody else and I don't know who. I was thinking about like that element of justice and you you were talking about like, you know, the character in the Hayer novel punching down. Oh, yay, I won and I punched down to do it. Like that's not justice. And... And it's also not historically accurate. But like I've seen some people say like, you know, it wasn't a bunch of like suffragettes running around in the 1800s or whatever. Like that also is inaccurate. If there is that element of justice there, I think that it's more forgiving to sort of have those lapses in complete historical inaccuracy. Like maybe 50% of the female population at this time was not suffragettes. But who cares? I mean if it's part of that sense of justice, that that vision of, you know, history that is a little nicer and a little kinder to these characters that we want to love, that we do love, like, maybe that's okay. I agree with you. I never understand why people are like, there are no, there were no Asian people in all of England in this time period, or there were only a small population. And I'm like, cool, write about that. <laughs> yeah, write about you all three of them. Or- if there's only three, who cares? <laughs> right. If there's all three, you have a trilogy. You're set. Like I never <laughs> understand this idea that because we don't have a lot of something, right, that they are somehow not worthy of consideration, or because people are not. Yeah, I just, I just don't get it. Like it's, and I think it's also a very sort of strange thing that romance does because this is also why we get women's history quite late. Historians literally say, well, women don't leave any sources. Why do we care? So I find it so interesting that romance authors are essentially saying a version of that, right? Well, there are no sources about these, you know, South Asian people in uh, Liverpool. So who cares? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I think part of it has to do too with the, okay, the, so like the dark side of two things, personal history and personal responsibility. So Whenever, like, a white person shows a picture of, like, their grandmother or their great-grandmother on Twitter and they're like, oh, 
here's my grandma when she was like 15, like hanging out at the beach. I always think like, was it a segregated beach? Mm. Did your (laughs) great grandmother go to lynchings for fun? What kind of slavery memorabilia do you guys have in your attic? All those kinds of things. And, and people want to say, Oh no, 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 no. Like my family's not like that. But then in the next breath, will say, oh, but my dad voted for you-know-who. And so I think a lot of times with fiction, people want to escape from their own horrible reality. When I first started reading romance, someone had recommended a bunch of Regency romances to me, and I said to them I didn't really want to read them because I can't pretend that Europe didn't get a bulk of its money from the transatlantic slave trade. And that person got very upset with me. And the fact that they can't comprehend that I live in Southern California because of the transatlantic slave trade, like if we can't even put those dots together, people then are not going to want to bring that over to their escapism, right? You have to get to a point, Alfre Woodard had like this brilliant, brilliant comment during the press tour for 12 Years a Slave, where she was talking about how slavery is like one of America's great original sins, right? So the way we treated Blacks in America and the way we treated Native Americans in America and First Nations people in America. If you can't even admit to yourself that you are living on stolen land and your family is where they are because millions of Africans were kidnapped, then you can't have realistic conversations about American history and about European history. You 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 cannot have those realistic conversations. So if you can't even get there, having the nuance to weave those things into a happy story, like you're just not there. You're not ready to accept that like, yeah, maybe your great grandfather owned slaves and maybe your grandparents like went to lynchings for fun. And like maybe your parents called the cops on black people walking down the street. And maybe you told your kid that you like weren't quite sure if you wanted them to hang out with the other black kids in their school. And I think sometimes people don't understand that white supremacy and racism and anti-Semitism is so ingrained in Western culture and American culture that to accept it and present it in any kind of way in our fiction is very, very difficult for people. And the acknowledgement of privilege, I think, is very hard because it makes you feel bad and it makes you also feel because I mean trust me I know that I may be Jewish but I have a ton of I have a ton of white privilege I know that I can speed and get pulled over and nothing is going to happen to me and the idea that that isn't true for everybody else that I am a benefiting from that and b that I know that it's not true for everybody else and that I haven't been able to help fix it in a meaningful way, I think is very hard, is a hard dissidence for people to understand. And a lot of people don't want to even try to think about that. Right. I'm trying to find, so when Rebecca was talking about Disney, it just reminded me that as an undergrad, I learned about how historiography works through a book on Disney. And it just seems so perfect because part of what, and I can't find, remember the title, it's it's been like 20 years. I don't know. I'm old. But Why like, don't you remember uh, everything? Right? I am not a Wikipedia, basically. But part of what the author sort of uses, he used Disney films and Disney parks to talk about the way that Walt Disney had purposefully reconstructed American history. 
And it's so fascinating. It's horrifying, actually. But it's fascinating in the sense that it was the best example that I could have gotten at that moment in my life to sort of think about a thing that I I sometimes feel like historical romance readers in particular don't understand, which is that all history is a construction. Yeah. So maybe going back to your original question, you can't really get to historical realism because it's always flawed, right? And it's always a construction that, as Felicia has shown with George and Hire, is built, is based on, right, like, the moment at which you're writing. And as Rebecca said, like, who you are, right, and what you can and cannot accept. And if we understood that, there is room to sort of accept historical romance as it is, right, you know, flawed and all. But then there is also room to understand, one, you know, that we need more diverse authors writing historical romance, but also that when you change the protagonist, the story itself of something that feels familiar must change because it's it's all constructed. Mm-hmm. That was extremely well said. And thank you for tying everything together and acting like I actually asked a question. I really appreciate it. This is what I do in class. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Katrina, what is something other than romance that's bringing you joy during the pandemic? Oh, so I love YouTube. I watch more YouTube than television. And I love the YouTube channel, How to Cake It, which has a baker who makes novelty cakes with various themes each week. And so each night as I am stressed and anxious and trying to go to sleep, I'll usually fall asleep watching a few episodes of How to Cake It. So the baker is Yolanda Gamp and she has this really sort of funny, bubbly personality and she sort of like cracks jokes, but it's instructive as well. So it's interesting to sort of watch her make these like, you know, novelty cakes with all of this fondant and like all of this artistry. And I know I could never do it, but in the end, they look just so pretty. Oh, that sounds like just pure escapism. It is. An episode I saw recently was like a square watermelon, which I didn't quite realize was a thing. (laughs) And it's only funny because she has this running joke about this watermelon that she calls Walter. It's a whatever. It's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm, I'm, obs- I don't... I'm obsessed with how to cow cake it it's so good it's so good and she's definitely made like little baby dolls I don't know I just think it is so ridiculous but the artistry is so interesting and it's just a nice bit of escapism oh that sounds great and that is all for night nine of the Decameron we are almost at the end of the series we are recording this weeks before I release this episode so whatever is happening in the world when this comes out I hope that this series has been a welcome distraction and has helped you feel a connection to other romance novel lovers during the pandemic Make sure you're subscribed to Shelf Love on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss future full episodes of Shelf Love. And I'd love for you to check out earlier episodes in this series. You can check the show notes for links to the romances we mentioned, plus where to find my guests. I hope that you are well, keep calm, and keep reading romance. We didn't talk about this during the podcast, but if you guys want another kind of like weird but fun YouTube channel to watch... It's this guy named James A. Janice, and his channel's called Dead Meat. And he does recaps of, like, horror movies. And he counts, like, how many people got killed in the movie. But he's really sweet and really funny. So it's like watching this sweet, funny, goofy guy talk about, like, Halloween. It's really it's really cool. And his videos are, like, oddly upbeat. And I've just been, I've been watching him nonstop. 
Shelf Love is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.